Well, it's been a fairly stressful week, and there have been moments this week when I've felt a little bit overwhelmed. Um, but it's nothing compared to what other people are going through. And some of you may have had hellish weeks, and some of you may feel under unbearable pressure. Um, Paul knew about pressure. He's writing this letter to the Philippians that we're looking at, uh, these verses from Philippians 4 today. He's writing this letter from prison. He is facing a capital charge. If it goes badly, he will be executed. And the church in Philippi that Paul founded, the church he loves, is divided. There is bitter conflict between two women. Just before these verses, Paul has appealed to them, Eunice and Syntyche, to agree together in the Lord. And yet, despite that, Paul urges his readers to rejoice, to be gentle, and not to be anxious about anything. Uh, what planet is he living on? <laughs> I, I mean, when you are under that sort of pressure, how on earth can you possibly rejoice, be gentle, uh, and not be anxious about anything? It's like telling a drowning person to swim harder. But Paul gives them a reason. It's very simple. In English, it's four words. Uh, the Lord is near. In Greek, it's only three. Kyrios engus. The Lord is near. The Lord is near in time. This is the season of Advent when we remember that the Son of God came as a human being among us. It's also the time when we consciously prepare ourselves for his coming again, his second coming. Uh, and so we say in the creed, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We say in the communion prayer, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will. That is our Christian hope. God spoke to his people long ago through the prophet Isaiah and Zephaniah and others that one day his king would come, would bring judgment and deliverance and his kingdom would be established. And we read about that in Isaiah and Zephaniah. He will come to rescue his people, to deliver us from our enemies, and to save us from disaster. Uh, he says to people who were at the time in exile, I'll save the lame, those who could not walk, I will gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise. At that time, I will bring you home. And to those of us who are in exile, living in a foreign land, and I'm not talking about those of us who are migrants here. This is talking about all Christians. We live as strangers and exiles in this world. Our real home is there. We live as citizens of the kingdom of God, but in the kingdom of this world. We long for the kingdom of God, where we will be set free from sin and law and death. 
where we will see God and be filled with delight in God, where we will live with joy for God and bubble over in praise for God. What is interesting in both Isaiah and Zephaniah is that God's people are invited to rejoice as if that kingdom has already come, as if they've already been gathered together, as if they can see the beauty and holiness and righteousness of God. And Paul in Philippians urges the early Christian church to rejoice Yes, they're a tiny minority in many places facing persecution and tremendous pressure. But the Lord is near. He is coming. His kingdom will be established. Now, perhaps some of us here may be cynical. We think, but Paul wrote those words 2,000 years ago. He said the Lord is near and the Lord has not yet come. How can he say, or how can I say, the Lord is near in time? Well, there is a biblical and a practical answer to that. The biblical answer is that a thousand of our years is as one day to the Lord. And when eternity is your time scale, what is 80 years? What even is 2,000 years? And Peter tells us that the reason the Lord has not yet returned is that God in his patience is waiting for all people to come to repentance. And that all can include people who have not heard or people who have not yet been born. What if God wants to include your child or your grandchild, or your as-yet-unborn nephew or niece in his kingdom? And the practical answer is that if we believe the Lord is coming soon, then we will live each day as if it could be the day that the Lord returns. We're to live with that sense of expectancy, that longing for him, that desire and conviction he will come and establish his kingdom. And that's particularly important when believers face fierce persecution. Revelation 13, and I'm speaking about this because I know that there's been a WhatsApp going around about some people about this, but Revelation 13 speaks of the beast empowered by Satan who will arise at the end times, who will do astonishing, amazing things, and who will compel all people on pain of death to worship its image and to have its mark placed on their right hand or their forehead. And the beast appears to be a God-defying global totalitarian government, which demands not just the allegiance of its citizens, but also their worship. And Christians throughout the ages have identified the beast with different totalitarian regimes or rulers, because when you're living under such a regime, it does seem all pervasive, from Nero to certain popes to the Tartars through to Hitler and the Soviet Union. And they have identified the mark of the beast with tattoos, symbols, and now with implanted chips. In Sweden, people are starting to choose to put into their hands implanted chips. 
And they're both wrong and right. They're wrong in that obviously those regimes or rulers in the past were not the beast because they failed and the end has not yet come. But they are right because anything or anyone apart from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who demands our ultimate worship is at the very least a mini-beast. And we're called to stand firm against anything or anyone who demands that total subservience, absolute obedience and worship. One thinks of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, three uh, people in the Old Testament in the book of uh, Daniel. They refused to worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up even though it meant that they were thrown alive into a blazing fire. And it's our conviction that the Lord is near, which means that believers can both be alert to the dangers, because we know it will happen, and which also give us the incentive to stand firm, as, for instance, did so many Russian believers in the Soviet Union. But the Lord is near can also, of course, be understood in a different way. The Lord is very close to us. The Lord who will come to reign and bring salvation and establish his kingdom is now so, so close to us. He is close to us as our Lord who we follow and serve. He kneels in front of us as a servant and washes our feet. He is beside us as our friend, sharing with us his desires. In John 13, we're told that the beloved disciple lays his head on Jesus' chest. Actually, you don't read that in our translations, but that is what the Greek actually says. He is our host who welcomes us to the feast and who feeds us. And he is close to us because we are part of him, like branches that are part of a tree. He is close to us because he lives in us by his Holy Spirit. The Lord is near. So rejoice. Rejoice in him. Rejoice in who he is, in what he has given us, life and creation and each other, in what he has done for us, his becoming a human being, his dying for us, his, his rising for us. Rejoice because he loves you, knows you and has called you. Rejoice because he has saved us from guilt and condemnation of sin. Rejoice because we are forgiven. Rejoice because he has given us hope. Rejoice because he has given us his spirit. Rejoice because he has given us hope. Rejoice because he is so close to us. Rejoice. Learn gentleness. The Lord is God. He is so much bigger than us. His purposes will not be frustrated. Yes, we need to work together with God, but in the end, in the end, it is his kingdom, and it's ultimately up to him. 
And we don't need to force the issue to compel people to do what we want. Remember God's patience with us. Remember the many times we have failed him, we have let him down. And remember how both severe and gentle he has been with us. We've been watching the um, British programme, The Apprentice. I don't know whether there's a Russian equivalent. Um, but uh, uh, last week, the finalists were interviewed. Uh, they're, they're, they're all competing uh, to get uh, £250,000 to uh, start up a business. Uh, and they were asked what drove them to do what they did. For one, it was to please her, his father. For another, it was to make her children proud of her. For another, it was to show that she could do good even though she came from a place that everyone rubbished. And, and, and in each of those, you could see how deep it was because it brought them to tears as they spoke about it. We all need, or we all think we need to prove ourselves. And sometimes that need can make us impatient and aggressive. And when you look at The Apprentice, you see how that desperate need to prove themselves meant that they can end up trampling over the truth and trampling over each other. But the Lord is near. He loves you. You have a destiny in heaven. You do not need to prove yourself to anybody. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. And do not worry. Maybe you're redundant, worried about how you will feed your family, facing a criminal conviction. Maybe you're about to be called up to serve in the army. Maybe you're about to go into hospital for an operation you dread. Maybe you know that they are out to get you. You're sick with worry about your child or partner or parent. Your marriage is on the rocks. You're constantly on edge. You're about to be, or you think you are about to be, shamed and humiliated. How can we possibly, possibly not worry? Well, the Lord is near. He is so close that you can turn to him, give him your worries, give him your anxiety. In the Old Testament, King Hezekiah was one of the rulers in Jerusalem. His enemy, the Assyrian army, had surrounded the city. The people for whom he was responsible faced annihilation and humiliation. Sennacherib, his enemy, sent him a letter telling him what he was going to do to the city and ordering him to surrender. All Hezekiah can do is to take the letter to lay it before God and to pray. He knew that this was far bigger than him. He knew that worrying could change nothing, but he knew that his God was the Lord who could do everything. And notice that this verse says, with thanksgiving. That is so important. Thanksgiving takes the focus away from ourselves. It puts it back on God. 
When we say thank you, it means we recognize that what the other has done for us was done as gift, and we did not deserve it. There's a great quote from Denzel Washington, the American actor. At a speech to church leaders, he said this, Give thanks for blessings every day, every day. Embrace gratitude. Encourage others. It is impossible to be grateful and hateful at the same time. I pray that you put your slippers way under your bed at night, so that when you wake in the morning, you have to start on your knees to look for them and find them. And while you're down there, say thank you. A bad attitude is like a flat tire. Until you change it, you're not going anywhere. Think back over what God has done for you. Write it down and say thank you. Think over what he is doing for you, how he is changing you. Write it down and say thank you. Think, thank him for what he will do for us. And finally, in verse 8, there is a promise. You hear it most weeks from here, from the front, when we have the blessing. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This peace is the gift of God. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit, his presence with us, and we can ask for it because it is the Holy Spirit who will bring peace to our unices and syntiches, to our divided communities. It is the Holy Spirit who will bring peace to our troubled and anxious and burdened hearts and minds. This is the peace which will lead us. This is the peace which means we can shelter secure in the storm, there's a painting of a bird sitting on her nest, nuzzled into the cliff-edge rock, while the wind rages and the waves crash around her, and she is at rest. This is the peace that can unknot our stomach in the dark hours of the night. This is also the peace that can conquer mountains. It's the peace of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego as they stood before the king and told him, no, we will not worship your statue, whatever the cost. It is the peace of David as he walked towards to meet Goliath. It's the peace of the Lord Jesus as he walks that final road to the cross. This is the peace which tells us that it is okay the Lord is near.